Hark the bardic paladin Who sings and plays again He tells the tales of glory And weaves a magic story He'll join you at your table And ask you to share a fable Heroes of humble origin Villains who must be fought again No matter their skill or prowess The people in life are countless so we pray you heed our request. Enjoy this tale of sidekicks and sidequests. Episode 93 Shango the High Priest. Welcome to Sidekicks and Sidequests, the Dungeons and Dragons podcast. That helps to put humans back into humanity and breathe life into your campaign NPCs with backstory and bravado. That's right, we're building a world, one character at a time. I am your host, Kurt Krenwelge, the Bardic Paladin, and I'll be joining Dr. Paul Guestwicky's table in the Levitating Platter. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of Sidekicks and Sidequests, the best unofficial Dungeons & Dragons podcast, in my humbly biased opinion. Before I introduce my guest, I'd like to go ahead and give a shout-out to my first sponsor, Plus One EXP. Tony Vicinda is the mastermind behind his mastercraft of beard balms, game design, and community building. He's got beard balms named after all the basic stats from D&D, so get a can, apply it to your face, and smell the sweet aroma and the sweet victory that comes along with increased strength, dexterity, charisma, and more. Beards and Beyond is the indie RPG that helped to launch this brand, but Tony's collaborated and developed several other projects which you can continue to play this holiday season, including Repugnant, I Toaster, Down We Go, The Santa Side Squad, Through the Void, Vamp Nugula, and Brand Standing. If you support Plus One EXP either by buying something on their website or going to tonyplus1.itch.io, it all helps funnel into the Plus One Forward program, which seeks to support additional indie tabletop content creators to continue making awesome stuff. So I'd highly encourage you to follow Tony and Plus One on all the socials, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, to keep up with all of the various projects that are being worked on as well as upcoming interviews, one-shots, and actual plays of some of these other amazing games. And if you don't mind, when you go to plus1exp.com, use my affiliate code Randolph at checkout when you're buying a Beard Bomb or a Beard RPG this holiday season in order to get some savings on your purchase at no extra cost to you. Again, the code is Randolph at checkout on the website plus1exp.com. And of course, you are hearing this at some point uh, from the past because we're recording this sometime before the Thanksgiving holidays, but this is going to be our official first episode back in the new year so hopefully things are going well i know the news is kind of looking a little dire and bleak right now but you know what this podcast is all about positivity and keeping things upbeat and in a good spirit so without further ado hello mystery contestant would you care to introduce yourself tell us who it is that you are and what is it that you do Sure, thanks. My name is Paul Gistwicky, and I'm a professor of computer science at Ball State University, which is in Muncie, Indiana. 
And as a computer science professor, I teach a lot of courses on software development. Um, and my particular research interest is actually in game design and development. So in addition to teaching courses about things like advanced topics in, in programming languages, I also teach courses on game design and game development. And my, my very favorite thing to do in my job is uh, I get to teach pretty regularly a course where I recruit students from multiple majors to work together on games that are created with community partners, such as museums and schools. So um, I've got one coming up uh, in the spring, for example, where we'll have um, about half the team is programmers. We have uh, about half the team artists. We have some musicians involved. And sometimes I've had philosophers and English majors, and we've worked with all sorts of good people. Uh, and it's really, it's a highlight of my career is to be able to get these uh, groups of undergraduates together and, and making cool games together. Yeah, I think, you know, to plug my friend, Bobby Angel had you on his podcast conversations with Bobby and Jackie. And so you got to go more in depth into this explanation of how your program uh, seeks to bring together a multitude of different kinds of people who you wouldn't necessarily think would work on a game. But then suddenly it's like, oh, this cool thing. And I get to, you know, have my little mark on saying like, wow, I helped make a game. So that's pretty that's cool. right. Yeah, yeah, I had a great time talking with Bobby and Jackie. I, I think they're doing great work. And uh, it was a great opportunity for me to explore some of the sort of the reasons for doing the, the work that I do. You know, my my students, we, we tend to talk more about how do we do the things, right? <laughs> how mm -hmm. do we make these things work? How do we move forward? And it's fun to have an opportunity sometimes to think and write about what drives me to do it, because a big part of it is is trying to share this passion, this this creative love with my students. You, you know, you were explaining like, oh, bringing the team together to work on this project. And before uh, we hit the record button, you said, oh, I got all my dice at the ready. So I feel that begs the question of do you currently or have you ever played Dungeons and Dragons before? Yes. <laughs> so um, I'm 45. And I can remember borrowing a buddy's red box back in elementary or middle school. The best gift I ever received uh, was probably the uh, Marvel Superheroes role-playing game that my brother and I received when I was probably in, in middle school. We played that all the time, and that led into uh, Dungeons and Dragons. When I was in middle school and high school, I was in a, a multi-generational D&D group playing second edition, and that was really formative on me, um, not just in my opinion of games, but really me as a person. I mean, hanging out with people who are college students and people who are adults and people who are kind of middle-aged and old, older adults all playing D&D together. It was fantastic. So when I was uh, yeah, high school and college, I played all the time, at least once a week, and I designed my own systems and I loved it. When I got into grad school, I sort of shifted away from the hobby a little bit, although it's always something I've, I've loved, right? I've had a love of it. And now that I have, I have four boys, um, and we regularly, I want to say regularly, I mean, every couple months, I'll find a game and I'll say, hey, let's try this. Let's try this. Um, we'll play some together. Uh, at the time of this recording, it is November, which is uh, National Game Design Month. And so all my kids, uh, we all make a game during November. And sometimes my kids make their own little role-playing games and miniature-based games. And uh, so, yeah, so I've played a, a, a great variety of games. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons was mostly second edition for me, but I've played lots of other tabletop role-playing games. And I, I think it's a, it's a wonderful hobby. A couple of times, I've tried, you know, getting together with guys closer to my age and saying, hey, let's let's try to do a regular thing. But man, scheduling when you got when you got a bunch of kids and adult responsibilities, it's not like being uh, 19 or 20 years old anymore. But yeah, I, I, it's a it's a hobby. I have a, a real long lasting love of. Yeah, I was going to say you could always just use the excuse of, well, I'm a college professor and I'm going to make a class where it's just we're going to do a campaign. And so I <laughs> sorry, honey, I have to prep for the campaign. I mean, the college course, you know, so we're going to be up late, uh, you know, doing the game. 
You know, I, I do get to teach a, a course on game design, which I just love. And it's it's primarily this is not a programming course, by the way. It's a course on systems design and 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 how do we how does a designer think about games? And uh, there's always one session where we do a short form role playing game. And oftentimes, what I'll do is I'll split the class in half and we'll play a game called Everyone Is John. So that's become the role playing game that I play the most because I play it twice or three times a semester, depending on how many students I have. But it's really fun to introduce students to that idea. Some of them have never played any role-playing games at all, but you know, with the popularity of things like Stranger Things, um, more people are aware of the hobby, so they have some idea, some exposure to it, right? But mm. to show them something that's not just five E, right? That, sure, not just yeah. D and D, um, it kind of blows their mind. So this particular game, everyone is John. Each player in the game is a voice in the head of a man named John, and you—it's a competitive game where you vie for control of this guy and try to get him to do what you want. Um, and it's unlike anything they've ever seen before. So, as a professor, right, I love it because it's so clever and weird, but also it gets my students thinking about what are the possibilities for this uh, art form. You know, with Dungeons and Dragons, Pathfinder, and Call of Cthulhu, and some of these other uh, TTRPGs that exist out there, which are very fine indeed, which. I would love the opportunity to be able to play all the games. But yeah, you know, you were talking about the advent of uh, the popularity of Stranger Things and other Critical Role and some of these other big streaming shows that are out there putting it into the minds of college students that you're mainly dealing with. I don't know. Do you have kids in your class that all of a sudden, you know, they're working on a game project, but then they all of a sudden decide like, hey, why don't we just, uh, you know, go ahead and just start a game of of something. And then you you see all these bonds form between different groups of students that are like, oh yeah, they just formed for this one project, but now they're all best lifelong friends. Usually it goes the other way in my classes that I'll get a couple of students who sign up for game design because they already love D&D or they're in a campaign together. Um, and then they they will sometimes infuse stuff from the class into their game. But um, because this course I teach is an elective, uh, the people who show up tend to be ones who already love the idea of playing these games together. Th there's this concept in games education and, so and somewhat in game design of games literacy, right? So how well do people recognize things like different sides dice or um, what deck building means? And one of the big challenges in the classes, I might get people in there who have played you know, Magic the Gathering for years and paint miniatures and back things on Kickstarter. And other people who think like Uno is a really great game, right? <laughs> not not to slam Uno, but like that's the depth of their experience. And so mm. it, it can be hard to maintain sometimes the, the level of conversation you want to have when you have this wild difference. I mean, it would be like teaching a literature course and some people have read Shakespeare and some people have read, you know, C-Spot Run. You know, it's, it's, it's a whole different level because we don't have, it's not present in school, right? This idea that mm. games as art is not in school in the same way that, you know, everybody's heard of Picasso, but, you know, not many people have heard of of um, Eric Lang, who's, okay. who's a board game designer. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, so it sounds like all these celebrities, if you will, in the D&D &D community that are going out there and helping to start or reintroduce the idea of like D&D &D clubs or board game clubs and stuff like that. That's what you're saying. We need more of that in our schools. Yeah, yeah. I think there's nothing to be lost. You know, it's such a beautiful hobby and, um, you know, it's, it's a pastime like other things, right? Like you can't let it eat up your whole life, but uh, it's, it's such a great creative outlet. And a lot of people can kind of explore new ideas. And, and uh, as you said earlier, make friends, right? What a great way to make friends. Well, of course, this podcast is all about the other and focusing on the sidekicks and the side quests. So first question here of the two, who has been one of your favorite NPC or sidekicks, whether they're from a RPG, a video game, movie, film, television, etc.? And why is this character stuck with you? 
Sure, sure. Um, now, I, I did expect this question, right? And so I spent some time thinking about it, and it was harder than I gave it credit for. Um, I had to think about all the, the many different games I've played. And um, the one I came up with for NPCs is, uh, I, I'm going to do a throwback to the 90s, um, Planescape Torment, the computer role-playing game, is a character named Mort. And he always comes to mind as an interesting character. Right off the bat, you meet this floating skull. You don't know who you are, but the floating skull seems to know something about you. And he's, he's funny, and he gives exposition. And as the game goes on, I, I don't want to give any spoilers, right? <laughs> For a super is, old game. The game yeah. is 25 years old, right? So maybe I can, <laughs> right? As the time goes on, he's not just a comic relief character, and he's not just a voice of exposition. You get to know something about his backstory, and it's it's worthwhile. It's very well written. It's a very clever He's a very clever character who's got a bit of a guilty conscience and for good reasons, right? And mm. so that's it's it's very nice. So yeah, so I'm gonna go with Mort from uh, Planescape Torment. And if people have if listeners have not played Planescape Torment, don't be turned off by the old graphics. Uh, give yeah. it a shot. Well, I know speaking of old graphics, um, just because I'm a huge fan of the franchise now since my college days, but Fallout just celebrated its 25th anniversary, and so. I remember one summer being like, oh, a Steam sale. Why don't I download the old school Fallout games? Which, of course, I was a little kid when those original ones came out and me trying to click and play original Fallout. I was like, yeah, this isn't like Fallout 3, New <laughs> Vegas or 4. So I'm going to mm -hmm. give up on that one. Man, I, I could go on and on, on on Fallout, but I'll give you just a, a quick reaction to that. Um, New Vegas, I thought was was great. I mean, oh, everybody yeah. agrees yeah. it was great. But they, they missed something that the original ones had. The mm. first Fallout game, you don't know there's mutants, right? They weren't on the box. They weren't mm -hmm. a thing. You go out there and suddenly there's mutants. And you play Fallout 3 and like from the beginning, oh, there's mutants, right? Well, you miss all the the exposition, all the adventure that the the first two games had. Now again, right, they're dated, right? The graphics and some of the gameplay. Um, sure. But the the exploration of the world, um, you can only sort of do that once, right? And that, that was right. Fallout 1. See, and podcast listeners know my earlier part of the show where I would talk about 76 all the time, which I feel like got to be an experience of that because even though, yeah, there were problems with launch or whatever, and but going into a world where the only other humans that you could interact with were other player characters, you know, other people on their consoles or their computers, and there were no NPCs in the game, that was a whole wild experience of like, okay, well, I just have to find like robots or I have to find like holotapes and stuff like that and kind of piece the story together that way and then kind of just make up my own story. And since then, we've had a major update, the Wastelanders, and now human NPCs are back in the game. So that's kind of been a... I don't know if that bears any like study in uh, in your realms <laughs> or anything, but that's kind I, of been an interesting thing too. Yeah, I never got into seventy six, um, but but again, like my, <laughs> I have all these students who will kind of share with me their opinions about all these games. There's too many games for one person to play, so I, I pre always appreciate hearing accepted. these stories. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, the side quest question as well. What's been one of your favorite side quests from an RPG, video game, movie, film, television, etc.? And why has it been one of your favorite side quests? Yeah, again, that's a great question. And, you know, I've been, I wax philosophical. It got me thinking, like, side quest. I think that trope is more dangerous than we give it credit for. <laughs> because if you read a story or you participate in a story, you have a quest. You simply have a quest. And the hero's journey is defined by a series of trials that make the character that expose something about the character. Not, I was going to say make them stronger, but it's not a power fantasy. Mm -hmm. The character gets to know themselves 
through the road of trials. And if you compare that to the normal way that side quests are designed in contemporary games, they are throwaway pieces of a power fantasy, right? It's a thing you do to get XP. It's a thing you do to get a better sword. It's not about exposing anything about yourself. Sometimes you can get exposition about the world, mm -hmm. but oftentimes they are fetch quests and throw away and you know i i've been a, a cranky old man since i've been a, a cranky young man um <laughs> but like this idea of side quest it, the question that you sent me it, it really got me thinking like what is side quest and can we do something better so i'm gonna go back now i'm gonna go back i, I thought i had a couple different answers here's my best mm -hmm. one i'm gonna go back to planescape torment and oh, i'll tell yeah. you why <laughs> planescape torment even though it's like 25 years old it's the last game i remember playing that was about something so Planescape Torment is about this. What changes the nature of a man? That idea infuses the story and the mechanics of Planescape Torment. And this side quest with Mort, which doesn't involve going out and getting stuff for him, it involves talking. It gives you a different answer to that question. And at the climax of Planescape Torment, you have to deal with your answer to the question, what changes the nature of a man? And the game has its own idea. And it's a good idea. And I mean that in the virtuous sense, like the idea of the game is a good idea about what changes the nature of a man. Now, I try to think about games like in the last, was it 25 years or so? I've played a lot of games and I've enjoyed a lot of games. You know, I, mm -hmm. I'm not anti-game. I love games. Sure. I was trying to think about the last game I played that was about something yeah. and not just save the world. Like, oh, you're a child of prophecy, like all the Bethesda games. I'm so sick of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I get what they're doing. They have to make the game that's going to appear to the latest teenagers right but mm -hmm. like i'm so sick of child of prophecy stories well but what would you say about red dead redemption 2 <laughs> you know i had so many people tell me to play it that i tr started it and i couldn't get more than an hour into it because it was so slow and i got mm. four boys and i can't spend 90 hours on a game like i could when oh. i was 19 years old you know it's too slow for me i've had a lot of people tell me that that's a good example and again this is a case where i rely on kind of students and, and community feedback and my, my peers um because i i couldn't i just couldn't get into it um but but don't ask me how many hours i've spent on xcom too because ah. that's where my time went right okay <laughs> which is yeah. all emergent story you know xcom 2 is all emergent story it's not about anything besides beating up aliens mm -hmm. but you, you get nice emergent story but you know i've played deus ex and, and mass effect in these games and they're nice they're fine games but the stories tend to be a bit uh unsatisfying compared to what changes the nature of a man so so sorry like i said i wax philosophical yeah. but i didn't know i would say like i mean i haven't gotten <laughs> i mean i still have i still have progress to make on my current playthrough of red dead redemption 2 but i know I was just talking with Johnny Stanton the fourth about, you know, the side quest question. I talked about like, it's technically a main story quest for Red Dead Redemption 2, but it acts very much like a side quest is one of your gang members comes back to the camp. And so Dutch says, okay, Arthur, go ahead and take Lenny to the bar, cool off. And so then it, you know, it starts off with the simple, like, oh, we're just gonna have a drink at a bar, but then it gets like more raucousy. You know, the, there's a hit song that's playing in the background. Arthur is getting more more drunk, so you're getting like inebriated. That mission just stands out to me. A lot of people also talk about near the end of the game when you're John Marston and you get to like build the house. And so it's the montage song of like building a home. And so you're all the side quest is is like, or the quest is is that you're just laying the foundations and putting together the homestead that you know John Marston and his family is gonna move into. You know, thereby sowing the seeds and setting up. The 
the tension or the uh, the point of contention, Red Dead Redemption One, you know, John Marston's story. Nice, nice. Yeah. Uh, you know the the other answer I had. <laughs> what you said is very poetic. The other right. answer I had, and it was also it wasn't a side quest. I had to look it up. It mm. was the quest in Saints Row Four where you get to meet Rowdy Roddy Piper. Oh, that was my backup answer. Okay. <laughs> Technically not a side quest, but this was a case where like Rowdy Roddy Piper. Well, that's awesome, right? Yeah. It's not it changes the nature of a man, but it's almost as good. So yeah. It's not they live, but yeah, it's still pretty good. <laughs> well, it almost was. I, if you if you played the game, they basically embed they live into the game, and like, and you meet Piper, and he, and it's actually him. Like, it's fantastic. For the rest of the game, I went run around riding, wearing a kilt and a hot rod T-shirt. Like, I couldn't have been happier. There we go. <laughs> and then, of course, the last question here in the personal interview section: What are you passionate about, and why? Yeah, that's also hard. Uh, you know, it was so hard, I, I had to ask my wife. Because um, <laughs> if I asked my kids, they'd probably say something like table manners. But I asked my wife, what am I passionate about? And she said, uh, doing things right. And I thought, that's an interesting answer. Is she right? Well, she probably is right. I'm, you're, you know, your wife the, always knows the, you better the, than you know yourself. The truth is that, <laughs> yes, the wife is always right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the, the way that manifests, I think, for me is this pursuit of truth in things like when I'm teaching software development classes, I want my students to really understand what it means to program well, for example, we're talking about programming, like to program well, when we're designing games, to design games well, that there is a good way to do it. There's an ethical way to do it. And there's a beautiful way to do it. And we should do, we should do it these ways. It's not worth doing them the other ways. And similarly, in my teaching, when I took this job as a professor, I recognized I had to learn more about learning. I had to learn how people learn so that I could do my job well. Um, and that led into me doing some research on the science of teaching and learning, which I've loved. But it's also led to some professional frustrations. So I'll, I'll tell you, I don't mind telling you in public because I'm going to you know, elide the details. I was at a conference once with a bunch of academics talking about games. And I brought up this question, how are we supposed to get grants to make games? Because games are really expensive. And the answer I got from another academic was, well, when you write the grant, just lie about what you can do, get the money, and then do whatever you can. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And as a result, I don't get grants. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I'm happy and I can sleep at night because I feel like I'm pursuing doing things the right way. My teaching, my research, my service, you know, my job as a professor, my vocation as a father. Um, I think these are all these are all things that are worth doing well. Yeah, I think some game companies out there who may or may not listen to this podcast for all I know. But I think that's a good a piece of advice that we should all take to heart of. We need to do things the right way, not cut corners and not lie and cheat and promise the moon and the stars when it's not actually going to be able to deliver those kinds of things. Right, right. I think there's a better path. Yeah. All right. Well, we've learned so much about the good professor that I think it's time <laughs> we now head into a segment called NPC Creation. NPC Creation is brought to you by you, the podcast audience and our patrons from Patreon. Now is the time to give a shout out to our comfortable patrons and above with a loud hurrah. So to you, Katie Downey, and my mom and dad, we say cheers. Again, this is for patrons who donate $2 or more a month. Katie and my parents are my highest tier wealthy level patrons, which means they are able to add an element of chance to our random tables and NPC creation as well, which we might get to hear them used here today. If you want to join the cheapest podcast Patreon community out on this side of cyberspace, check the show notes below, go to my podcast website, or just go on directly to 
patreon.com forward slash sidekicks and side quests to find out more about our three tiers, one, two, four dollars a month, and to help us expand our operations at the Levitating Platter in this demiplane and worlds beyond. I'm excited. And this is NPC Creation, self-explanatory section, but uh, I'm curious, what kind of character are we going to make today? Is it, uh, are we going to roll the dice randomly? Are we going to base it off of an idea you already have? Or a combination of the two, or what are you thinking? Yeah, I was tempted. Uh, you know, I've I've been running games when I used to play D and D. I ran games almost all the time, and I had a whole army of NPCs that I recurring NPCs that I really kind of liked. But you know, that was a lifetime ago. I think we should roll the dice and see what happens. Okay, excellent. So I've got my tables here, and you've already got your dice at the ready. And so the first question we have to ask ourselves is, what is the name of the character? And we determine this by rolling a D twenty. You bet. Six. Six. Okay. Your answer was provided by previous guest, the Royal Tut, Shango. So S-H-A-N-G-O, but it's pronounced Shango. Shango. Got it. All right. <laughs> Off to a great start. And now the next question. What is the ancestry of our character? We determine this by rolling two D10s for a D100 effect. You know, I got my dice out here, but I don't have my uh, matching D10, so I'm going to have to make up a protocol here. I'm going to use the uh, the green one for the 10s and the red one for the 1s. <laughs> 40, 4-0. So, 4-0. Four zero. Okay, as I scroll and look. Ah, okay, Shango is a deep scion. Okay, I've, I've run these before in a game of mine, but um, yeah, they're kind of like um, squid monster people. Let me see. Like a I'm... mind flayer? Like in the same category, you think? Let's see. What does it tell me on the Forgotten Realms wiki? Um, <laughs> as I show the picture to my guest. Okay. Oh, that's a weird thing. Okay. I don't think those were in the Monster Manual in 2nd Edition, or at least not the version I had. <laughs> right. No, I think they are purely an invention for 5th Edition. So according to the D&D lore, it says, Deep Sounds were people who surrendered their bodies and souls to an evil aquatic power, usually a kraken, in exchange for their lives. Upon surrendering, they were transformed by an ancient, painful, and uncertain ritual into amphibious shape changers in service to their masters. So that's Great. kind of like I, the idea behind them. I I dig it. This is H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, man. I was just talking to my buddies. We were reading some scary stuff for October, and I said, H.P. Lovecraft, he uh, does this great psycho horror stuff. This, this sounds up my alley. All right. Checking here the details. Yeah, they do have uh, shape changer abilities, multi-attack, battle axe, bite, claw, psychic screech. Okay, so, yeah. So like you were saying, very Lovecraftian sorts of creatures. Okay, so moving along, the next question we have is, what is the job or role in society? For this particular character, we would determine that by rolling just a regular d10. You bet. Seven. Seven. Ah, ha, ha. Okay. Your answer was provided by previous guest, Gary Barker. Apparently, Shango is the chief cleric of architecture, aka, they're a divinely inspired city planner. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, a city planner, like an urban planner um, who, yeah, who either himself or his ancestor gave up his soul to the uh, underwater god for immortality and shape-changing powers. Okay. Okay. The next bit of dice rolling we do before we get to do a pause from it, what is the age range category of our character? We determine this with a D8. Let me find my D8. All right. One. Okay, interesting. So uh, one is a child age range. So are you okay with that or do you want to re-roll? 
child. So the child somehow became a chief cleric of architecture, like some kind of a, a, a prophetic child or, or from lineage. So not from experience, but from some kind of ritual, perhaps. Yeah, I can do that. Oh, okay. All right. Very good. And then our next question is uh, now describe the physical appearance. So when we're picturing Shango, who is a child age, divinely inspired city planner, that's a deep scion creature. What are you exactly picturing? Yeah, so you, you'd got to have like a grayish purplish skin, probably young. I, and again, I'm kind of making up the deep scion youth, right? I mean, because I don't know. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> they probably don't have their full tentacles, right? They got like little nubs of sorts, but I'm I'm definitely picturing uh vestments, like really complex regal vestments with lots of uh shells and what else? Uh, aquatic themes. Things look like waves, um, lots of deep greens and blues on the vestments, because the this uh Shango somehow has been born into this position, this uh uh, yeah, again, that's 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 not appearance, but that's what I'm thinking. Is this is mm. a, a a a contrast between a a unwrinkled, clean, soft, squishy face and these regal shell encrusted vestments? That's what I'm picturing. Yeah, and with like a predator mouth going on, looking at the <laughs> picture. <laughs> yes, perfect, perfect. Yeah, well, yeah, like predator mixed with like uh, the demi gorgon from Stranger Things, kind of a looking thing. Yeah, good. All right, so that's the appearance. But if you had to describe Shango with three adjectives, what three adjectives would you use? Overconfident. Okay. I'm going to write that down so I don't forget. <laughs> um, naive, clever. So someone who's naive and overconfident, but yet they're clever. Interesting yeah. juxtaposition of traits. So I think that could be fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, certainly. So you were coming up with the idea that Shango was kind of born into this role. So based on the adjectives, is this something that um, Shango has been doing for a while? He's been kind of like how at least I remember and understand from European history, you'd have all these wars going on with kings and it's like, all right, well, you're the son that was just born. You're like, you know, five years old, but you're going to be the king someday. And so then you maybe have the uncle or some bureaucrat or something ruling in the meantime. But is this kind of what we're thinking? Like Shango is training up to be like this chief cleric of the god of architecture somehow, or just is yeah. like, congratulations, you now are <laughs> divinely inspired city planner. And is just, I'm a kid, I don't know what I'm doing, kind of a thing. Or I'm just going to do something strange and different. And everyone just has to go along with it because that's what I say. It would be hard to have a society where on birth you would get this trait that you can't actually do until you are old enough to talk about it. So there must have been some kind of an elder that had this role, at least older than, than Shango. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I'm thinking there was an elder who was in this role and something tragic happened. And so the person who over the next, uh, again, depending on how many years they live, 20 or 500 years would be training into this position has mm -hmm. to take it much earlier than expected, but is sure, is you know overconfident, cocksure that they're going to do it um, mm -hmm. and has the raw skills, the raw cleverness, but also doesn't understand the world. The world that led to the demise of the mentor. Oh yeah, I like it. Okay. <laughs> So again, drawing on knowledge of video games and other things, D&D. &D. So, I mean, typically they talk about like Krakens and Abolis and such. Is Shango part of that kind of sort of society? Are we imagining it like a Bioshock rapture where it's like, oh, it's this underwater city and it's weird and it's spooky and it's other and, you know, it's, and Shango's being brought up into this world. Is it a society that worships Krakens or Aboliths or some of these other Cthulhu-esque sorts of things or, or what are you yeah. imagining? 
Yeah, I'm definitely imagining um, like an underwater kingdom that would be superficially like other medieval fantasy type kingdoms, but with a uh, complete uh, ritual devotion to this Cthulhu-like thing, which is probably real <laughs> and would right. probably kill them all. And so apostates are killed. There is no option to not believe in the the one religion of these undersea creatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they would be, I think, very hostile to any any others. Okay. And so then I'm just curious how much architecture then features into, I guess, those central worship and focus mm. of this creature. So in the role that apparently this architecture, this chief cleric architect person has to play in that society. Yeah. So in a society like this, where it is, there's only one religion and ritual is extremely important, then the architecture has to follow certain norms. Uh, otherwise, the gods become angry. Um, and so the it, it's, a, it's a very particular form. But because we're deep underwater, there would also be things like earthquakes and calamities. And so things have to be rebuilt. Um, out of the uh, whatever material would be available. Um, probably a lot of, uh, again, I'm picturing corals and undersea vents and things that would be maybe part of the temple. Um, so yeah, so I'm thinking it's less about sprawl. There might be some of that, but a lot of it would be recreating recreating things exactly the way they ought to be in accordance with following the, again, whatever it is, the aboleth or the kraken or whatever it is. Yeah, and depending on the particular creature, it could be the prime material plane that most normal people live on, but could be very well that this is somewhere in the deep, chaotic parts of the uh, ah. the, elem- the plane of water or something like that. And sure, so you-, so you could even have yeah weird kinds of water that are used as part of the architecture somehow. Yeah, I didn't think about that, the, the planes, yeah. Yeah, the planes. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just had Spelljammer come out in 5e, so who knows? It could be even Space Spelljammer shenanigans with water or something <laughs> like that who knows you know i grew up in the Dragonlance era and i can remember when uh yeah, spelljammer and, and tsr kind of flooding the market with all the things and i bought a couple of things yeah spelljammer was one we never quite uh fell into in my group but we had a lot of those uh fighters handbooks and rangers handbooks and barbarians handbooks <laughs> awesome all right so i feel like we're getting a better idea of the character now so i i feel confident moving along the questions and trying to determine What's going to be a valuable item, a piece of lore, a secret, or an ideal or concept that the character ascribes to? So this is where we do a combination roll of a D4 for the category and then a D6 for the particular thing. Okay, D4, I've got a one. Six. Okay, so one is an item, and then six is suggested by our previous guest, McKaylee Love. Uh, Shango has a gold coin whose face or head turns every once in a while cool whose head that like the head printed on the coin turns yeah i think that's what it means okay. like so it's a gold coin and then every once in a while the head or the face of it or something turns great great so, i don't know that's, that's exactly on that yeah that's exactly what a child chief cleric architect would need in order to ensure that the temples that are being built uh, have the approval of, of the uh, the Kraken, um, because that's the picture on the coin. And and as we are discerning or divining where the spires should be, the head, the head tells us, the head tells us where to go. That's Ooh. partially why I can be overconfident, because I know the gods are telling me exactly what's right, and how dare wow. anybody agree with me, because I've got the god's head on the coin. I was going to say, does that factor in as part of like a holy symbol, if you will, for Shango? Like, I mean, I'm probably, there's probably some sort of other image or something like that, but then kind of like, 
oh, I'm the chosen one. So look, I have this coin draped around my neck and I just hold it up and I look and I, and I see what's good and what's not good. Yeah, I guess I was thinking about it more as a um, a crutch than like part of the regalia. Like I've got all the regalia, but I've also got this other thing. And without it, I couldn't actually do the rest of my job. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. But, but, but I've got the thing. And as long as I've got the thing, what do I have to worry about? But would a child think of that as like, oh, so this is part of my regalia. This is what I'm supposed to wear. And this is what I'm supposed to do. Maybe part of that overconfidence aspect. Yeah, yeah, maybe then have it on a yeah on a necklace or a, a, a chain or something. You definitely wouldn't ever want to lose it, so you got to keep it sure. with you. So yeah, yeah which yeah. of course that obvious thing is you're dangling it in front of the party if they ever meet this NPC. Like, oh, he has a very large gold coin on a chain around his neck, and he seems to think it's very important. Mm -hmm. and of course, all, all... always holding it, always like re referencing it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're just you know it's like uh, was it the MacGuffin? You're just putting the loaded gun on the table and then just being like, <laughs> yeah, don't worry about that. It's like, well, no, what actually is that thing? I want to know mm -hmm. more. Of course, uh, we need Shango to be able to offer up an interesting side quest uh, should he meet any player characters. So what's going to be that side quest? You could randomly generate that by rolling the last dice, which is the D12. Or if you're inspired at this point, feel free to lay it on us, what you think would be good. I feel like it's got to connect to the situation of being the child in this role and the mentors, something bad happening to the mentor. But I, I'm, I'll be honest with you, I don't have a... I don't have all those pieces fixed fit together in my head yet. So maybe we should roll the dice and then and then weave it in. Weave it in somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Go for it. Roll a d12. D12. Let me find it. Here it is. Two. Two. Okay. Interesting. All right. So this answer was provided by previous guest Kia Young. Rob from the rich to give to the poor. How would that factor in? Would it oh, factor man. in? Yeah. Right, let's see. I'm a chief cleric and architect how would the poor come into play i really was thinking about this as being kind of a uh, locked into aristocracy but there could be a connection then with maybe some let's see court intrigue something like this um rebels now nah, that doesn't fit well with the idea of um strict religious society I mean, unless it has to do with like some sort of, um, I don't know, like scapegoating mechanism or something like that. I have never watched them, but there's the film series, The Purge, where it's like, oh, the one night of the year where we allow all crime to happen or something like that. And so then it's just madness. But I guess if it's a society already devoted to a mad deity, I suppose, then how is that any really different? <laughs> right, right. Every day is kind of mad. Yes, yes. You um, can try re-rolling on the D12 and maybe see if we can find a better answer. And then let me take not... my one. Let me take a re-roll if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I hate it. to let down your your previous guest who because that's that. Normally, I love Rob from the Rich. Right. Yeah. What is what does nine give us though? Nine. Okay. Well, this is suggested by my previous guest Andrew Leslie. Locate some missing tools. Maybe ah. this is fitting a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. So there's got to be again, kind of a MacGuffin, a thing that is needed either for the architecture or for trying to figure out who caused this, this trouble with my mentor. Unless, unless, you know, that wasn't all bad. I mean, if the Kraken decreed that he die, the Kraken decreed that he die. So mm. maybe it's much more mundane. Maybe you just need a, th a thing. I wish I knew more about the elemental plane of water, but really it's not a thing I've ever read or thought about. Um, <laughs> but certainly architecture tools, some, something that an architect would need underwater architect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe some kind of like a, like a claw or a tooth, something, something almost unbreakable that you would need for carving the runes in the temple or the castle. 
we could call those missing tools um, because maybe the previous ones were, were taken or stolen and we need new, um, what even, what kind of things would there be? I'm thinking like a adamantium or vibranium in the Marvel universe, you know, sure. something like well, this. Adamantine as an element, I do believe exists uh, within D and D, although it's certainly possible that you could just make up an obtainium or something equivalent <laughs> yes. for D and D. Yeah. Yes, yes, the 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 claw of some some creature that's essentially unobtainium um, that is needed for part of the uh, in order to 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 carve into the deep undersea vents the runes that would make the kraken not kill us all. The oh. alternative would be the kraken kills us all, right? Which would be bad. <laughs> right, that would be very bad. The tools, the claws themselves, maybe they call them the claws. They're not made from the kraken itself. It's from some other creature or something. Something along yeah, so something else out in the deep. And maybe, hey, maybe the legend is that the Kraken, the only thing that can kill these things is the Kraken itself. So when you find a dead one, um, you know the Kraken has been there. That's the, the evidence that the Kraken has been there. Oh, this is the power of our god. He slew this thing. Right, right. But we've got to go out into the most dangerous part of the water where the Kraken lives and get these things that are, uh, retrieve these from the corpses of the dead mm -hmm. things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Like I'm imagining like, um, well, we're talking about the, the deep vents of the undersea and maybe they do or don't exist. I can't recall readily to mind right in this moment, but like I'm imagining like an angler fish or something like that, like something big, huge and scary down in the deep. And then it's like, oh, well, the Kraken was here and killed it. So like, uh, you know, hurrah, triumph for our society. And then it's like, quick, grab as many claws or as many teeth as you can. And then these are our tools and implements because we know these bones, these things can survive and carve through solid rock and stuff like that. Perhaps the, uh, I forget what you call this kind of creature, right? Because I, I think they're real, <laughs> that that live in the, under the, the rocks and come out in a, um, like a, like a sandworm in Dune, right? Mm -hmm. So it could be a creature like this that lives in the rock itself. And it's the teeth oh. of this worm that because they're out there they could come out at any time and and eat the adventuring party or eat the explorers and only the kraken is strong enough to to defeat these things that otherwise can eat anything that that wanders into their den their into field. their breeding area their field yeah yeah this creepy dark and it's like you know barely you know you can barely see on the horizon you're like trying to walk on the on the ocean floor and then you, like the tremor sets off and then this all the yes. sand gets kicked up and this huge underwater worm thing just swallows up someone and pulls them down under and you're just like oh yeah we are not safe down here <laughs> exactly yeah a little little bit of tremor beforehand just enough to, to get people worried yep yep that's what i'm thinking so is it somewhere out in the field then these tools have gone missing or another part of the city and there was an attack and now they're missing and so we have to go through the wreckage or something like that and, and retrieve these tools obviously they're strong enough to be able to get through the rocks or whatever and to appease our god so we all don't you know kick the bucket as it were mm. yeah that's true it does say they were missing see my, my original inclination was maybe the old ones are, are worn out or you ritually can only use them 64 times mm -hmm. um and then you have to get new ones because the kraken says so and so somebody's got to go do that and a lot of people die trying to do it because you got to do it <laughs> yeah. um so i guess that counts as missing right because you're you're the ones you had can't be used anymore um mm -hmm. you got to go get new ones Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I allow for leeway and invention. Uh, you know, kind of bending <laughs> the rules, as it were, as long as we're having fun. So, I'm up to other ideas too. I mean, if if you want to have them be stolen, if it relates then... to the mentor, like the mentor was mm -hmm. responsible for holding on to them, and then he got murdered or oh. something, and now they're missing. He misused them. Oh, he misused them, and so he had to be killed. And they are now. Uh, we can't use them. 
they are what's the word i want um not anathema yeah like they're they're cursed sort of right like mm. so so those those are those the ones that are missing are the ones that we we buried or threw into the equivalent of the mariana trench with the body of the old mentor um because he was caught doing something he ought not to have done and so then the um, reason make them for missing. needing to locate them is it because it's going to give us a clue to like why he did wrong or what he did wrong or oh, I, I guess i was thinking more fundamental that like he he did it wrong so he was killed like end of story i'm the kid now right <laughs> yeah, I, no, um, yeah but the just... yeah if a party had to go and, and sort that out the party i mean it's almost like a great red herring like mm -hmm. what's the great mystery and the only mystery is the society is insane um that, that could also be very true yeah just kind of like a, the point of this whole side quest was just to illustrate that this society is you know very very alien yeah it's just how they are right like to, to them this is not a problem like in any any problem you see in this you're bringing from your own lens i i like stuff like that i think that's kind of fun so what's the reward then? So the players find these missing tools uh, and then they bring them back to the civilization. But then as we've kind of discussed, the culture views it as like, you've brought back like the cursed thing that we specifically didn't want back. So what's the quote reward yeah. for doing that? Is it actually losing? It depends how the players got there, I guess. I mean, if they were... You, know, you got this classic story where your your boat goes down and now you're prisoners and the only way you can secure your freedom is to go on this quest that is almost certainly going to lead to your death. So we send you off to your death, assuming you're going to die, and then you survive. And then they have to keep their side of the contract, which is, uh, I guess, you get to go now because <laughs> because we said we would let you go if you got these tools that we thought for sure you were going to die trying to retrieve. The inherent value in the items itself, even though there's nothing necessarily wrong with them, but because they were misused according to their cultural standards, they were like, oh, you know, we can't have these things. They're bad. And so they get sent on this. I guess now the side quest is morphing is like, okay, so you get sent to do this impossible task. And the part of it is like you find the missing thing because they're like, oh, hey, yeah, we'll, you know, we'll give you your freedom. Go find these missing things and then we'll honor the contract. And then so it seems like the players get to leave with these powerful I guess, natural tools or something that can then cut through any kind of rock, it seems like. Yeah, turn, the... turn it into a nice, like a vorpal dagger sort of thing. Like you got this, this it's it's small, but it cuts through anything. And that's a really handy tool to have if you want to put it on a spear or, a, um, yeah, keep it in a thieves toolbox or something like that. Um, it might even be too overpowered, but you have to be pretty high level to end up in this uh elemental plane of water or whatever it is <laughs> yeah sure it's not every day that everyone's just uh rolling at a character creation and being like all right we're gonna go take on a kraken now and yeah. their whole society so and, and you know it's, it's kind of funny uh i didn't mention this before but i i really prefer all human campaigns low magic low level like that's kind of my my happy space as a dm so this is like way way out there <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no personal experience running high-level campaigns or, or giving people uh, unbreakable, um, invincible claws. So hopefully this is okay and, and kosher with, with modern players. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And then for us to also consider what's going to be the consequence of failure or refusing the call if we're, I guess, assuming that they end up in this situation where it's like, okay, you have to go do this thing or else. So what's going to be the consequence of failure? I guess it's like, oh, well, you died and you succumbed to the trial that's it wah, wah, game over kind of a thing or i don't know do the, yeah, does if the you, society react different there could i guess i'm thinking of three options so we've got the actual original tools that could have been um essentially buried or you know thrown to the not the winds but the waves um mm -hmm. that are the cursed ones that they don't want back 
but the players could also learn that you could go to the place where the Kraken hunts these things and go find like fresh ones and then convince them, hey, these are these are they. But also if you're just going, if you're allowed to go out, then you could always try to escape. You could have a path. Again, I don't don't know what that would look like, but um, mm. but that would be an option for the players that they're they would not have to go down this one path. They could choose another path. They plane shift back to the prime material plane once they've long rested or or whatever, or get their components or their their stuff they need back in order to do it. Yeah, you might need some other. Again, I I, I don't know the how the standard magical plane shifting stuff would work, but mm-hmm. but if you had some MacGuffins or some other NPCs around who might say, oh, you know, by the way, here's a here's a really dangerous other path you could take, but we recommend you just do. <laughs> Do do the one that the DM has prepared, right? Sure, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Consequence of failure or refusing the quest. So they just kind of find another way to bypass it, but it kind of angers the society, I suppose. And now, like, the next time they go there, they're just all hostile or something like that. Oh, yeah. It would be like uh, um, they'd have a otherworldly hit put out on them. Oh, so then the Kraken just becomes a reoccurring villain for them to have to deal with or something, or the, or the Acolytes. or the Yeah, the servants. Kraken people. Yeah, yeah, whatever these, um, what were they called again? The Deep Scions. <laughs> the Scions. The Scions could say, well, because these people broke broke the, the they didn't do what the Kraken said, and, mm-hmm. and so we have to go kill them. We, we must, and, you know, with the same kind of fervor. Uh, and, and then the players may have to then actually go to the Kraken somehow and say, get the Kraken to, to get them to stop, right? That's the only thing that would make them stop, and you, you get some real fun high-level play there or some yeah. uh, wheeling and dealing with the gods, something like this. Yeah, interesting. So we sort of moved from Shango to, like, this whole society. Yeah, so then part of me says, like, what can Shango... How can he be a bigger part of the story for the players so that they remember him in particular, that mm-hmm. that if they get out, it's because of Shango, and if they escape and are chased down, it's because of Shango. So yeah, I mean, I, I could run with that. As a, as a DM, I could, I could you know, wing it with that idea. He's got the pieces in place to be a, a, a good motivated character, I think. So Shango almost seems like the central spokesperson for the society, then they all turn to Shango and they listen to Shango. And so then Shango becomes like the mouthpiece for the Kraken. And then, you know, in taunts, maybe taunts the players, you know, with like, uh, you know, sending messages across the planes or something like that. Like, you know, you wronged us. We're going to get you kind of a thing. And then it's a childlike taunt or something like that, but kind of in this alien (laughs) otherworldly sort of way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's wonderfully haunting, right? It's kind of Lovecraftian, right? That it's, it's both childish, but also, uh, nigh invincible <laughs> and because he's a shape changer you never know when he's after you right oh like, yeah and you can have could... different scions you know, like stalking your party as like oh that's just the guy in the bar all of a sudden oh now they're deep scion and they're attacking your party and then right. they're like for shango for the will of shango or something like that and then mm. you know and then that helps to reinforce the idea of like oh we got to deal with a shango guy the shango would... kid <laughs> the Shango kid. If he was a Western, that's what he yeah. would be. I almost would want to give the the people of these of this civilization, and I apologize, my Lovecraftian pronunciation is not that good. But there's this Cthulhu Fagan, right? This thing that they say when they when they are are chanting. I don't want to give them like a Shango Fagan kind of thing that they would yell mm-hmm. when they come and attack. And the players, you know, the not just the characters, but the players would come to recognize that as something kind of dangerous, but also like uh, thrilling, right? Oh, we're getting into this this. Uh, combat or this chase or whatever it might be okay well i feel like that's pretty good and like well rounds out shango i i I think and i think the only thing we can do now is throw shango into a random encounter 
Random Encounter is brought to you by Reaper Miniatures. They've been Texas Titans of the tabletop industry since 1994. They're right here in DFW, and they've got an amazing warehouse and game store. They make everything from paints to gaming accessories, and they stream on Twitch and YouTube with tutorials and interviews. Whatever system you're running, whatever game you're playing, Reaper has a mini for you. Every time you shop with them and spend between $40 $50 on your purchase, they're going to throw in a cool new mini of the month, and it's always something new. So, all the more reason to go back and shop with them often, especially this holiday season when you could get your very own Krampus, possibly. So if you haven't heard by now, Reaper Miniatures Bone 6, Tales from the Green Griffin, has wrapped up on Kickstarter, but you can still get involved in the action. Just sign on up through BackerKit, and you too could get yourself a whole new bunch of minis added to your collection in the coming year. And if you want to continue to do good in this world and get a cool mini at the same time, be sure to check out the Nightingale Kenku Bird Bard mini. It costs $9.99, and of that, $7.50 gets reallocated towards relief efforts in Ukraine. And so if you visit my website or you go in the show notes below, you can use that link to go and shop on Reapers and support Sidekicks and SideQuests at the same time. By clicking on that link, it helps to track the traffic that we direct towards Reaper Miniatures. So the more traffic, the more that our powers combine. So again, go check out that link on my website in order to use my special referral code and be sure to follow Reaper Miniatures on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Twitch, and YouTube. All right. And of course, this is the small vignette roleplay exercise we do to uh, test out our NPC to give them a life, a voice, a personality. So with Dr. Guestwicky being able to bring a voice to Shango, I suppose, who am I going to be in the scene? Uh, Am I kind of, am I the voice of the Kraken? Am I one of my podcast characters coming to meet Shango? Am I the former mentor of Shango setting up the seeds Mm. for like why I betrayed or did something different or or what are you thinking? Originally, I was thinking like a meeting between a a regular party character and Shango, but the idea of of like a, a final meeting between the mentor that, that's okay too um i think whatever you're comfortable with i mean i can i can kind of uh improvise do you want to do that last meeting with the mentor and maybe like kind of setting the stakes or something like that maybe yeah yeah why not let's try it shango would have to know at this point that mentor uh for lack of a better name has done something that he ought not to have done with the clause and because the society is so rigorous and Shango's already in training to be a priest or a cleric, Shango knows death is the end result. So that's what I'm thinking is that, that this, this meeting, the outcome of the meeting is known. Like it's known what's going to happen afterwards. What's not known is why, what, what is, what led to this? Okay. So if we're imagining plane of water and it's tumultuous, ever churning and turning these waves. And you go deep, deep, deep down, and then you can eventually find the bottom. And so then you find these various cultures, you know, whether they're Tritons or Mer people or Koatoas or whoever else. But eventually we find the pocket of the deep scions, those who serve the will of the Kraken. And so in the society, Shango was born, was prophesized, was chosen for the role. And so then the mentor, who I guess will just be their name, is instructing and showing and explaining the proper procedures of how to do and mark things. And we'll say at this juncture, 
you know, maybe it happened while Shango was resting or was doing something else. And there was a cave-in or something had broken and fallen down. And so in a rush of a speed, uh, because the room was uh, collapsing. And so he was just adamant. He wanted to make sure that it got done. And so instead of using the one form, he used a very hasty other form and it was imperfect. It was not up to the standards of the Kraken. And then the room collapsed and he made it out with his life. And so then it's like the next day and then the mentor and Shango are meeting for their normal training, you know, going over of things, uh, surveying the wreckage of the area, coming back to it. How would Shango react now? Maybe seeing the markings or maybe he heard a whispering from the Kraken telling him what the mentor had done wrong. And uh, Mentor, you still have the gold coin at this point, right? Yeah, I would say. Yeah, you, you have trusted it. it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you'd probably start with something like, Mentor, this is ugly. This is horrifying. This is not the way you taught me to make it. And then the Mentor will probably growl or snarl or something and say, Ah, but for the will of the Kraken, I did what I could to make sure that the markings were in place to ensure that his will be done. There was only so much I could do before the room collapsed on me. Like you were saying, he knows what's going to be coming, but he's like still trying to justify himself for what he did. Mentor, did you not trust me? Mm. Why let it fall on you so that I could be the high cleric. Mm, interesting. Okay. Uh, maybe the mentor is still holding on to the tools. And so he can feel his hands tighten on the grips, you know, and his eyes narrow, you know, so there's like that building resentment of him just being like, you know, maybe this is the breaking point for him internally. Like, this is like, you know, I'm tired, you know, I'm, I'm tired of reaching this. I should be the one that should be in charge, not him. Why was he chosen? Uh, but, and, so, and I'm picturing if you, you know, cinematically, the camera showing your hands on the claw and like it's ambiguous. Are you going to get the kid? <laughs> he'll actually swim up and just kind of, uh, you know, because he knows what's going to come. He knows what his fate is. He just goes up to the spot where he made it ugly. And he's just going to roar out and he gets the claws and he starts making more marks that are like not supposed to be in vogue. He's angrily protesting, but also accepting his fate at the same time. And so he's just like, ah, and he's making these marks. And I'm sure Shango is up there, is standing there looking up and seeing this happening. How is Shango going to react to the moment? Are there any other like guards or something that he's going to send on the mentor to like grab him and hold him? now that the mentor's enwrapped in his own sort of madness and anger and protesting and all this sort of stuff taking yeah. it out yeah so shango's gonna gonna get really emotional shango's young he can't he doesn't know how to deal with it he cries he cries um in a way unbecoming of a high priest which makes him think he can't summon the guards now because look at this moment of weakness right this is this is not this is unacceptable. So he has to watch. He has to sit and watch and, and burble, right? <laughs> while while mentor is having his, his moment, his moment of, of self-expression in a time when it should be ritualized. And I suppose if it goes on for too long, then Shango will have to draw himself together and get his composure and then call for the, the temple guards, call the temple guards in, point out he's gone mad. Mm. He's gone mad. 
He does that. And then finally the other guards swim over and they grab either hold of his hands and they bring him back down in front of Shango. They throw him on the ground. And I guess as part of the ritual for, you know, the defaming, it's almost like, you know, you have to be slain with the instruments with which you chose to profane. And so the guards, you know, almost like a hot potato or something, they barely want to touch these things and they throw them at the feet of Shango. And so you can see uh, the mentors just kind of like panting, you know, his little, you know, his little mouth is opening and he's, he's like, oh. the predator mouth, yeah. the predator mouth, the stranger things, good Demi Gorgon mouth. Mm. And he's just like looking up with a, like a mixture of resentment with acceptance, with anger, with all these swirling emotions, you know, with this last futile effort of himself. And he just looks up at Shango. He's almost kind of like, you know what you have been taught. You know what you've been raised to do. You serve the Kraken now. And if you do not do the will of the Kraken, then you are not worthy of the vestments and of the office. So kind of almost like a brazen sort of last stand challenge, Mm -hmm. sort of a thing to try and embolden Shango to do what he has to do, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And here's where I'm thinking Shango would break, right? Being young and being naive and and not realizing, knowing the rituals, but not knowing why they're there, right? You could take the the coin off with the chain, Mm -hmm. put it on himself, but tell the guards to do the dirty work. Guards oh. take him and the tools and throw them into the trench of doom. Okay. Don't let me see him again. Oh. So then he, Shango doesn't know if he's actually dead or not. Right. This mm. is part of the part of the quest. The Shango's uncertainty because he knew he was supposed to kill him, but he couldn't do it because it was his mentor and he's young and he doesn't understand. That would be a nice uh, uh, uncertainty, I think. So then the mentor is taken away. He gets in his last words. You're soft, you're weak, you're not ready. <laughs> yes. And yes. when you're ready to be a leader, when you're ready to be the chosen one, you yourself will come down and find me. Kind of like as a last <laughs> challenge. And then they yeah. leave him off with the, the claws. But I'm imagining the claws are used as kind of like a, you know, a near fatal wound in this mentor. They're like dug into him. He's like, oh, and then the cinematic, they kick him. <laughs> and then he just descends further down, down deep into this trench of doom. Yeah. And pur- his purplish face... blood in the water behind him. Yeah. 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 I could picture and, it. Yeah. And then it just bubbles <laughs> up and then it's uncertain. And then uh, I guess Shango's left there off in the distance, kind of having witnessed it from afar, not having to witness it himself. I think that's where he just grabs the coin around his neck and just caresses the coin, looks at the coin, and turns away. I got the coin. I got the coin. That's all that matters. The coin, the symbol. The symbol is all that really matters. I don't care about him anymore. Yeah. That's fun. (laughs) And so then I'm supposing that Shango will go about repairing all the work and all the damage and stuff like that, but not truly understanding or knowing what it was that his mentor was trying to teach him in these final moments. Yeah. Yeah. Never really knowing why. Never, never quite understanding. Yeah. Yeah. And having to always kind of eat away at him. Right. And as, uh, again, his lifespan is probably longer than your average PC's lifespan. But you can see as he gets older, it could drive the whole civilization to destruction because he's got this doubt that was planted by something his mentor knew that he never quite got out of him. And maybe the mentor is even still down there somewhere and he just doesn't know, right? Ah, the seeds of destruction. I love it. (laughs) And scene. 
All right. So a little <laughs> kind of a unorthodox approach, I suppose, to the random encounter, but good. I mean, obviously with a with a professor who's very learned on uh, on all this and making it. I just make stuff fun. up. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. What did you uh, think of that random encounter and how was it getting to finally, um, you know, put the puzzle pieces together to understand or try to understand Shango? Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad we took this path of getting that meeting with the mentor because you get this um, uh, father-son sort of thing happening, which is a great, I mean, so many wonderful stories about good father figures and bad father figures and, and what that can mean to someone and, and how it can drive people. Yeah. Uh, drive people mad really. Um, that's, that's a great hook. If a group of players wanted to explore that in a narrative, I think it could be a lot of fun. Out of curiosity, have you ever played a, a game like fate, the role-playing game? I can't say that I because this uh, one of the most fun ones I've played with my boys in recent years has been Fate. We keep meaning to come back to it, but it has this flavor of like what you and I were doing with some extra rules. Like you write things down on index cards and you put them out, but it's a lot of like, wouldn't it be cool if, and then you like into something very cool in a way that that, that really appeals to my my sense of um, dynamic story, you know, and, and kind of uh, yeah, exploration of spaces. So. Yeah, and it was cool. I mean, I, I was kind of like wondering like, oh man, it's, you know, the, the side quest has a couple of different angles, but I kind of like how in the random encounter we were able to kind of, you know, set the stake, set the tone. And so now maybe it's more of a side quest of like, okay, you stumble in this civilization and, um, you know, whether it's kind of like borrowing from the adventure uh, set up for Out of the Abyss where you're, um, you know, you're made prisoners of the drow and the underdark and then you're able to escape or you somehow end up in a deep scion society and whether you're brought before Shango and then in a moment of privacy, Shango is able to let down his vulnerability in his guard and he like doesn't want to admit it, but he's also like, you know, I was supposed to kill my mentor and he's down there and those tools are missing and I'm supposed to kill him with those and if you can bring those back then we'll call it square i won't have to own up to my people and to the kraken of like what i failed to do and then i still get to you know come out on top and you get out with your lives and, and whatever else or something like that yeah again kind of this childish naivety like if i just had those things everything will be fine <laughs> this will solve my problem if, if you just go solve my problem everything will be fine which is very side questy right it's it's that encapsulation of side quests and then if the players wanted to hear more about shango even if they helped him out you could you could keep dragging them out because it turns out having the tools doesn't actually make him fine mm -hmm. yeah because <laughs> now he has to go get new tools because those ones are cursed basically mm -hmm. culturally so yeah so. yeah not mechanically so cursed mechanically is is different than, than yeah within the flavor of the of the item so mm -hmm. yeah so we're starting to enter into the final thoughts of the show so yeah if you had any other concluding thoughts or pieces of feedback i know you're probably my first academic person that i've had on my podcast like official like yes i'm a college professor academic sort of type so Am I doing something good worthwhile for the community at large? If you yeah, will. yeah. And, you know, it's not a big deal. To be an academic is a great privilege. I mean, I, I get paid to help young people, well, people younger than me anyway, um, <laughs> like learn learn some truths, right? And to prepare them to get out into the world. And that's, that, that's a great privilege. I've met people who look at what I do sometimes and say, well, games, like, isn't there something better to do? Like, isn't there something more important to do? And you know, man, games have always been part of our culture, always, and, and an important part. And playfulness is such an important part. So, so yeah, I, I, I love 
what you're doing. So here I am saying like academics doesn't really matter. But speaking mm -hmm. as an academic, I think what you're doing <laughs> is really important, right? I think taking these things seriously, even if it's just coming off of a random encounter table, but to say what what can we do with the story? Where can we take it in a in a way that's that's creative and good and leads to players having a good time fundamentally, right? And the uh, the whole setting here, this this whole Shango experience, it's much darker than I tend to go with my games. You know, and partially because I'm playing with my my four boys, the youngest of whom is seven, right? So I'm not going to do under dark children killing mentors with him. But that's that's fun for me too, right? Because it's not a place I can normally go. So so I hope it's help I hope it's helpful for other people just to think about, you know, how you and I bounce stories together. But it's also definitely helpful for me just to explore this kind of thing that I, I might not otherwise, you know, might not otherwise come come across. Well, I always like to leave the final moments of the show for the guest as far as a soapbox platform, microphone stage. So anything you've got to promote or plug, you know, where can we find you? You know, what things are you working on? Where can we check out, you know, anything that you're working on and uh, any causes or passions or anything like that? Let us know. Sure. Um, you know, I have a, a YouTube channel that's mostly programming tutorials. So if folks want to hear about the kind of programming that I like to teach. A lot of it is stuff I make for my classes and then I put for free online. That's at uh, youtube.com slash paulgistwiki. Um, I have a blog that I write on about all kinds of things, including uh, games and painting miniatures and uh, making alcoholic beverages uh, and teaching and learning. Um, so that's over at paulgistwiki.blogspot.com. So folks who are interested in, in any of that stuff, like I said, it's, it's kind of a, a hodgepodge of things I like to do. They can check that out. And uh, if you want to check out some of the video games that me and my family have made, that's uh, my handle on GitHub is Dr. G, Dr. Dash G. Um, so you can find me on, on GitHub there too. So uh, anybody wants to check that out, you're welcome to. Feel free to reach out to me and, and we can chat. All right. Awesome. Well, Dr. Guestwiki, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to be a guest of my humble podcast. I hope to uh, have you back on and uh, we'll see what other characters we can make. Thanks, Kurt. I really loved it. Keep up the great work. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sidekicks and SideQuests. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Overcast. Or feel free to save the RSS feed to use the app of your choice. Visit our website, SidekicksAndSideQuests.com, for links, write-ups of the NPCs, and to learn more about the show and the guests who have been on it. To stay up to date and interact via social media, you can follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Reddit by searching for Side KQ Podcast. I would love to talk D&D and showcase your fan art, stories of how you used our NPCs, discussions, and commentary. If you would like to hail the bod, simply send an email to sidekicksandsidequests at gmail.com. To help this show be the resource it's meant to be, I ask that you please leave a review on iTunes to help spread the word and share our podcast with your friends and family. Whether you're a veteran player or an aspiring dungeon master, or you've never played Dungeons and Dragons before, there's something here for everyone, and I want to hear about it. And finally, after two years, I've decided to open a Patreon for Sidekicks and SideQuests. If you love this podcast and you want to help us grow and expand our operations, I would appreciate it if you would go on over to patreon.com forward slash sidekicks and sidequests. No matter your lifestyle expenses, we have wonderful rewards at every level of Patreon membership tier. Your name on the wall of the levitating platter, a loud hurrah on the podcast, or the possibility to introduce an element of chance to NPC creation. Psychics and Psychos is unofficial fan content permitted under the fan content policy, meaning I'm not approved or endorsed by Wizards. Portions of the materials used are property Wizards of the Coast, copyright Wizards of the Coast, LLC. Thank you for your support, and I'll see you at the pub next time. Bar to rock on one, two, 
One, two, three, four.